friends, welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. You know, one of the things that's been so cool for me about this show was it kind of stemmed from this desire to talk to to people who have who have influenced my life and and over the course of these episodes I've I've had the ability to talk and and walk with with some wonderful people and every once in a while though there's someone who comes on the show that I'm like okay I can retire now I'm I'm good I I don't have to do anything else uh my guest today is someone who is is so passionate about the about about justice issues within the church and they're also someone that that really lives it and and sets an example in their life and I think he he's a hero to me and and I'm honored to to get to speak to him and get to learn from him today I get to welcome to the show Shane Claiborne Shane thank you so much for being on the show heck yeah man great to be with you Absolutely. Well, I, I'd kind of just like to start by asking you, obviously, a lot of our listeners will probably be familiar with who you are, but just for those who aren't, a little bit about your faith journey uh, that's brought you to this point. Uh, yeah, well, I'm old, so I got, I, I'm going to try to make it quick, but I'm a Tennessee boy, <laughs> you know, that fell in love with Jesus down in the Bible Belt, and I ended up uh, uh, reading the things that Jesus said and saw all the contradictions uh <laughs> in myself and in the church. And yet I kept leaning in, you know, and I I went to Philadelphia to go to college in part because I wanted to study the Bible and I wanted to study sociology. I like how Mm. Karl Barth said, we we need to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other Mm. so that, you know, our ticket doesn't just become a, a, or our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. So I studied sociology, studied theology and the Bible. Uh, and while I was in undergrad, had a, a, you know, a bunch of different experiences that really shaped me. Um, one of them was working in India with the missionaries of charity and with Mother Teresa when she was still alive. So she's one of those folks that I, when it comes to uh, leaving off the fragrance of Jesus in the world. Uh, she's one that did that pretty well. So I, mm-hmm. I admire her and worked in India. And then I, I, I've worked in a lot of different church settings. Um, and from, you know, out of college, we started a community on the north side of Philadelphia called The Simple Way. And that, that's still the community that I'm a part of uh, over, you know, it's been, been uh, over 20 years that we've been forming this little community inspired by the early church, incidentally, in the book of Acts, where it says, you know, all of the believers were together. They shared everything they had. No one claimed any of their possessions were their own. You know, so they, they shared possessions. They had this real commitment to bringing the, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, you know, um, and uh, a commitment to nonviolence and to, to life. And so, yeah, we, we really... Um, uh, have been at that for the the uh, at the simple way, and then more recently, I've been uh, leading uh, Red Letter Christians, which is a we like to say it's a movement of Christians who want to live like Jesus meant the stuff he said. <laughs> mm, yeah. and, you know, yeah. uh, so we, we've got speakers and writers and bishops and pastors, you know, and and songwriters and artists that, uh, and just, you know, ordinary folks trying to follow after Jesus that uh, are all all over the country. So we've, we've, um, 
been doing that for the past 10 years. So I kind of think of the simple way as my local work that I walk on in one leg. And then the Red Letter Christians is more the movement work and, and trying to uh, proclaim the message of Jesus and justice. So I do a lot of speaking and writing uh, and a lot of podcasts, man, but I'm, I'm really <laughs> pumped to be on yours because I, I, I think there's, there's something beautiful happening in the world. And I'm glad to just be one little speck of what, what the Spirit's up to, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm glad to be a part of it too. And I mean, you you do so much more than 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 the the local work and the red letter Christians. You've you've written extensively on on a red letter ethic in in the sense that you've written on nonviolence, you've written on nationalism, you've written on the death penalty. And I like you said we want to live like Jesus meant what he said. And it, it the further I get from it, as someone who grew up in a very conservative part of Southern California, I, I begin to realize how actually controversial of a statement that that is of, of to to live like Jesus meant what he said. And, and what he said was more often than not anti what the, the evangelical church looks like today. And I think one of the things that keeps getting leveraged against me when I bring up that Acts passage or, or some of the things that Jesus said is uh accusations of socialism so shane, i just want to clear the air here and ask you shane claiborne are you a socialist it's all i'm glad we're starting there <laughs> it's it's hilarious because uh i see what the what what uh, the gospel calls us to is is much more radical than than you know socialism or communism it's this uh ethic of love um hmm. that uh, but not the, you know, it's, it's like Dostoevsky said, it's not the sentimental love of fairy tales and storybooks, you know, but it's the harsh and dreadful love that keeps you up at night. You know, this idea that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, And what's that mean if I'm, you know, living in a, a you know, heated house when my neighbor's in a cardboard box? What's that mean when I'm mm -hmm. thinking about my 401k when they don't even have enough food for today? You know, so I, I really think... Uh, you know, when you, when you read the gospel, it's 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 been said that it it comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable, and that's mm. sure, surely what has happened to me. You know, but I mean, there there is no doubt that uh, the trajectory of what Jesus called the kingdom of God, you know, the reign of God, uh, we might think of it as God's dream, you know, coming on earth as it is in heaven, uh, disturbs the peace. <laughs> Mm. You know, it, yeah. it, the, the, the gospel of Luke says, uh, cast a vision. It says the mighty are cast from their thrones and the lowly are lifted. The hungry are filled with good things and the rich are sent away empty. So that's not Karl Marx. That's the gospel of Luke. That's Mary's song in the Magnificat. <laughs> you know, this idea that uh, the last are becoming first and the first are last. I mean, it's a radical vision. So when I read mm -hmm. Jesus, um, and that's what we're inviting people to do is just to um, look at, you know, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, start there, you know, and, and uh, when Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, he says that we're not, you know, we should live like the lilies and the sparrows and not worry about tomorrow and not stockpile for next week, but to really live with the, 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 the sense of God's providence. And, you know, and you think of Jesus saying, love your enemies and I really uh, became convinced that when he said, love your enemies, he, he meant we shouldn't kill them, you know, <laughs> you know, so I, I think this, 
this gospel is it's it's a radical gospel and it's a, a, an absolute contradiction to a lot of the values that I think I think we see prevalent in our world, you know. And I I love that scripture that says in Romans, "Let us not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds." So I think the call mm. of Jesus is a call to have a new imagination. It's a call to um, live in ways that don't compute, you know, that don't conform to the dominant patterns of our world. Um, and, uh, and, and, and a lot of the great saints were, um, they were nonconformists. You know, Martin Luther King mm. at one point was accused of being maladjusted and he embraced <laughs> the word, you know, and he said, yes, we have become way too adjusted to racism. We've become way too adjusted to the inequity between the rich and the poor. We've become way too adjusted uh, to violence. We need some wholly maladjusted people in the world. So that's uh, that's what I think the, the call of Jesus is, is a call that uh, uh, is a radical, radical call. And you look at the ethic of the early church. I mean, going back to your question about socialism is that it says when the, when the Holy Spirit fell on them at Pentecost, that they, you know, sometimes Pentecostal, you know, we, we, we focus on the speaking in tongues, but what was really uh, such powerful evidence of the, the touch of the Holy Spirit was that they began to radically um, hold their possessions with open hands. And mm. it says literally there were no needy persons among them. Uh, they, yeah. they just, you know, they put the offerings at the apostles' feet and it didn't go to buy a Cadillac for the, the, the bishop or a, <laughs> you know, another mansion for the televangelist. It went to actually uh, alleviate the suffering of, of people in need among them. So I, I like to say that I'm not a, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of things that end in ist because I think Jesus is calling us to be lovers of God and lovers of people. And what happened in the early church was that um, it, it wasn't that they shared everything and so they had community. They actually had community and it changed the way that they, they you know, shared their possessions. So it was a description rather than a prescription. You know? So I think mm -hmm. to love our neighbor as ourselves is where we began and, and it, you know, that, but that love is so radical that Basil the Great and so many of the early Christians, they said, uh, we call someone a thief if they steal someone's clothes, but shouldn't we call any Christian a thief who has more than they need while someone else has less than they need? You know, if we've got extra clothes in our closet while there's people cold on the streets, aren't we guilty of theft ourselves? And, you know, that old saying of, uh, if we've got two coats, we've stolen one uh, because there's still people on the streets who need our jack our extra jacket. So, you know, that's that's the kind of radical ethic of the early church. But it was an ethic of love. It wasn't uh, just something that they uh, thought needed to be. Uh, it, it wasn't to be prescribed as much as provoked, you know, through mm. through the love of God. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's what's what seems so interesting to me as I mean, like I'm speaking as an outsider, I'm I'm in the middle of it, but it's so interesting to me as as I kind of start rethinking the way that I, I view the world and, and the way that Jesus calls us to be in the world. I like you said, it it should be provoked. Like justice should be provoked in the life of a of a Christ follower. And and one of the things that I come up against time and time again in conversations with people is like, yeah, sure. There are 
like there are uh, African Americans being wrongfully murdered by uh, police officers, or there are Syrian children trying to get into the country, but they're not allowed to, or uh, there are immigrants at the border that are being stripped of basic human dignity. Um, but all these babies are being killed. So because of that, we're not going to pay attention to any of that until that's taken care of. And so there, there's, I don't think cognitive dissonance is, is the best word for it, but kind of a, a value adjustment that's been made of this is our thing that we're going to work towards justice. And I mean, quite frankly, like not much has been accomplished on their agenda. Um, and I don't think it would be right if it was, but for, for you as someone who is very uh, active in the, in the public forum with issues of, of justice and reconciliation, when someone comes to you with the question of abortion, what is your response? Yeah. So thank you for asking that. And, and first of all, you know, as you, as you were kind of sharing before, um, as you, you know, one of the things that occurred to me is a lot of times our biggest problem is not a compassion problem, but a proximity problem. Hmm. It, it's a relationship, relational disconnect. Um, and, and so by that, I mean, you know, where uh, Mother Teresa said it may very be very fashionable to talk about the poor, but not as fashionable to talk to them. <laughs> you know, and I think we can talk about immigrants, but the question at the end of the day is what are their names? Like, you know, like mm. um, the, the, that, uh, you know, I think that we are better at talking about issues than we are talking to the people who are directly impacted by them. So what has changed my heart is that proximity on so many issues, you know, on the death penalty, I spent half of my life as much as I've been against it. I was for it. And I, uh, and, and, um, and, you know, reading the scripture, studying it, those were important because I think, you know, we, we do need to change minds, but sometimes our, our hearts change before our minds change. And what really changed for me was, you know, being with people on death row, um, people who uh, were wrongfully convicted of crimes that uh, they had nothing to do with and sentenced to death. You know, friends like my, mm -hmm. my, my buddy, Derek Jameson, who spent 20 years on death row for a crime he had nothing to do with, you know, multiple execution dates, three hours from his execution. So I think those are, those are, and, and also being with people who I know that they are guilty for the crime that they are convicted of but I've seen the power of what Jesus has done in their lives over years of, of hard spiritual soul work. You know, they've, they've really, they're a different person than they were uh, uh, 20 years ago or, or whenever the crime was committed. And as my friend, Brian Stevenson says, we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. Hmm. You know, so I think, you know, at the heart of so many of these issues are human beings that are made in the image of God. And that doesn't that doesn't exclude abortion. I think abortion is a really important thing to talk about. And as you, you may know, Chris, you know, we hosted a conversation on abortion uh, through Red Letter Christians, uh, this in, in a partnership with my friend Lisa Sharon Harper and Freedom Road this last uh, week. And we had, you know, like 15,000 people that have tuned into that. And, mm -hmm. But one of the things is that we had women, there were five women and four men, and we're talking with each other, and we're talking with mm -hmm. people who have been directly impacted by abortion. And I had no idea, you know, like one in four women, one in four women has had an abortion by the age of 45. Wow. So this touches so many lives. And since that conversation, I've had so many 
people in my lives, women in my lives who have said, I never felt like I could talk about this with you, but I wanted you to know that um, I'm one of those women. Um, and I've just buried that deep inside of me, a, a sense of shame or guilt, you know? And so I, I think that like, I believe that God wants to heal all of us. And I think we need a better conversation on uh, uh, abortion. Um, and uh, frankly, I don't think any party has handled that. Uh, either party has handled that very well. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know. We don't have all our facts on the table. You know, the fact that abortions have been dropping every single year, uh, mm -hmm. you know, over the past 40 years since Roe versus Wade. And um, I'm one of those that wants abortion to be rarer and rarer. You know, I want to save as many lives as we can. And um, that, that drop in abortions has happened regardless of whether the president is Republican or Democrat. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, we need, to, we need a deeper conversation about how we really reduce abortions. And I think a big part of that uh, is things like uh, health care and social services, child care. Uh, mm. One of the, 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 the biggest, if not the, the, the biggest um, uh, cause or, or, or um, uh, thing that's said of why, I, why women have had an abortion is financial you know, um, mm -hmm. and so that, that, you know, if we want to care, make sure that mothers and their babies can flourish, I think we got to do more to alleviate poverty and to make sure that the resources, uh, that are needed are there for, um, life to flourish. But, you know, I haven't said that, you know, I, I so I, I want, uh, I'm writing a book on the sanctity of life right now that will include abortion, but it'll be much broader. And what mm. I saw is that the irony in America is that we've reduced what it means to be pro-life to one issue so that many people just talk, think about abortion when they think pro-life. And we would be more accurate. Uh, many people who say that they're pro-life would be more accurate to say they're pro-birth or they're anti-abortion uh, because mm. it, it's as if life begins at conception and ends at the moment you're born. <laughs> you know, once, yeah. once you're out of the womb, everybody forgets about you. So I, yeah. I, 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 I want to be pro-life from womb to tomb. I want to be have a consistent mm. ethic of life, and that's what the early Christians did. You know, they they spoke about abortion, um, and uh, eight of the early Christian leaders, in, in like eleven different writings, did talk about abortion. But it was one of many things that was. Uh, a, a concern of theirs when it came to a pro-life ethic. You know, they spoke against war uh, and combat. They spoke against uh, the death penalty. They spoke consistently against death, even the gladiatorial games, you know, every kind of um, uh, glorification of violence that they saw in their culture, they spoke out against it. So that inspires me, you know, and it also makes me think that we've got a lot of work to do to have a more robust uh, ethic of life that is not just uh, concerned with one issue, you know. So mm -hmm. I was one of those folks that, you know, I said I was pro-life in the 1980s, but really uh, I, I was pro-guns, pro-military, pro-death penalty, you know, and yeah. anti-life on pretty much every issue than abortion. So that's, yeah. where, that's where, I, you know, I've been longing to be more consistent. And what I saw is that part of the reason I wrote a book on the death penalty, Executing Grace, um, and a book on gun violence, Beating Guns, was because I, I, I saw that Christians on these two issues in particular um, have been the obstacles to 
life and to change that I think mm-hmm. can save more lives. So for instance, on abortion, there is no, no question that, uh, I mean, uh, with the death penalty, there's no question that the death penalty would not stand a chance in America if it weren't for Christians. Literally, the, the Bible yeah. belt is the death belt um, in America. It, yeah. you know, almost 90% of executions are happening um, in the Bible belt where Christians are most concentrated. States like Texas, where the governor you know, claims to be Christian and yet is executing people, you know, uh, half of the executions in our country in that one state. So, um, and then, you know, on, on, on gun violence, um, Christians are the highest gun owning demographic in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, white Christians in particular. So you go, man, like those of us that are worshiping the Prince of Peace on Sunday are packing heat on Monday. You know, we're trying yeah. to hold, we're holding the cross in one hand and a Glock in the other. And there's something that, you know, is deeply troubling about that. Mm, totally. And and that brings up a, a, an interesting question of for, for someone who is one of the minds behind red letter Christians, the, the common pushback to that is like, well, Jesus said buy a sword. Mm-hmm. So like, Let's talk about that passage because, I mean, it's something I've been personally doing a little bit of research into myself over the last week or so. But when I'm, I'm sure someone at some point has come to you and said, Jesus said, buy a sword. Yeah, surely. So, well, the, the context for that is really interesting because it's very clear that there were uh, people who had swords or that were prone to use the sword, you know. And, mm. and so I, I think of it sort of like Jesus is, is, uh, is, is kind of airing the dirty laundry, you know, <laughs> he's kind yeah. of get, putting it all out there. And so when he says, you know, go get your swords and, you know, uh, uh, they, what happens uh, is interesting because it says uh, it was so that the prophecy would be fulfilled, that he would be ordered with the transgressors. So it's very interesting that, you know, it, it, that the whole scripture doesn't look well upon people who believed in violent revolution or believed in the way of the sword as, you know. Mm. Um, and, and so what happens um, is that right after that, and this is so important, is one of his own disciples pull, pulls out a sword to protect him. The soldiers come to arrest Jesus and Peter pulls his sword out and cuts off one of the guy's ears who's coming to arrest Jesus and Jesus's response is absolutely stunning. Um, he Jesus scolds Peter. He rebukes Peter and says, "Put that away. You you don't get it. You know." He's like, mm. you, "You live by the sword. You're going to die by the sword." So he rebukes Peter, and then what he does next is so beautiful. He picks up the ear and puts it back on the man that Peter had wounded, healing that man, and. I see all of this as one of the most important object lessons of for the disciples and these early Christians, many of whom were still zealots. They were still this revolutionary movement that, that some of whom believe that you're going to overthrow uh, the Roman Empire by force. And, and, and yeah. so when Jesus triumphs over that act of violence, um, Tertullian and some of the early Christians, they remark about this and they say, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us. Every Christian was Mm -hmm. disarmed in that moment, because if you ever had um, a, a good argument 
for standing your ground, as the NRA would say, right? Like, like Peter had it. And yet Jesus makes it so clear that, um, that this revolution is about turning the other cheek, not standing your ground. It's about loving our enemies and disarming their hatred and their violence, not by mirroring that violence, but by transcending it with love. So uh, I, I, I just, uh, I think it's a powerful, powerful passage um, that often, like many passages, gets uh, distorted um, and misused. You know, and now you have bumper mm. stickers that say, uh, go get your AR-15, you know, and they, they're like misquoting that whole passage. And, that, you know, there's, oh. there's quotes that say, if Jesus had had a, an assault rifle, he wouldn't have been killed. You're like, yeah, I think, I think you got, I think you've missed the point here, you know? Yeah. And, and so, but that becomes, you know, that's really important because if we aren't careful, we can uh, recreate Jesus in our own, own image, you know, as, as uh, I think it was George Bernard Shaw said, God created us in his image and we decided to return the favor. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> so we make Jesus into not the Prince of Peace, but, uh, you, you, you know, the, the, the sort of mascot for uh, gun owners in America or something, you know, so it's just, a, it's, it's a, you know, you know, so I think we've always got to be going back to Jesus and uh, it, you, you just can't get um, any more clear, I think, uh, than when Jesus is being killed um, on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And at every step along the way, Jesus is, subverting violence um, mm. by by enduring violence. I mean, I think what Jesus is doing is absorbing the violence of the world, putting it on display so we know that what we are capable of. And then he shows us a way to live differently in a world of violence without emulating um, that violence. And that's why, you know, I think it's such a contradiction of the gospel to be, you know, to defend the death penalty, because I think we, we've missed the entire point of Jesus if we believe that someone um, should die for what they did. I, be, I believe that Jesus, you know, uh, was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, you know, <laughs> yeah. like Jesus' yeah. blood covers it all. Like, and, and so, yeah. you know, no one's beyond redemption. And, and that, that's, uh, uh, so one of the real core truths of the gospel. So, yeah, man, those are my thoughts. Yeah, no. And you, you brought up something that, that I want to touch on. I really want to touch on the, the death penalty in particular. And I mean, death penalty, gun violence, a, a lot of the, the problem for people kind of having that AR-15, like if Jesus had only had an AR-15, like not only is it horribly wrong theologically, but it's also that there's never been immediate exposure to death or violence of uh, for for instance like my 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 dad is a is an attorney in the county i grew up in and he was in charge of officer involved shootings and one of the things he always said he was like regardless of what you see in the in the movies or in the video games or in the in the music you listen to like even in the best of circumstances like this changes people's lives forever mm. and so with that i think it it's i don't want to say people should go out and and experience that like that kind of loss that kind of damage for themselves but what are some practical ways that people who are kind of on the fence with whether the death penalty or with 
uh, guns or the immigration, what, what are some practical ways that people can interact with those issues on a more tangible level? Right. So, I mean, obviously we don't want um, people to experience, we don't want a single other family to experience gun violence, right? Like, like it, mm-hmm. it's, it's hit too many people already. Um, but I, I think privilege is being able to choose my friend Alexia Salvatieri said privilege is being able to choose which issues we care about and which ones mm-hmm. we don't privilege is being able to opt out of caring about something because we don't believe that it affects us you know and the fact mm-hmm. is that many of these issues um uh choose our brothers and sisters you know like there's many people who would uh not like to care about um police violence, but it, it, it shows them, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, Tommy or Rice's fam- family, George, uh, Floyd's family, you know, Breonna Taylor, like they, they, they didn't probably ever foresee themselves, you know, care, being concerned about those issues. And yet, like, I think for those of us that are, um, living in spaces where, we don't have to think about these things, but we choose to think about them. What we've got to do is we got to lean in to the suffering of the world. We've got mm-hmm. to um, be more proximate to those communities that have been in those families and those people who have been traumatized by gun violence and other forms of violence. You know, we've, we've got to stay proximate. And that's what Jesus does. You know, in Jesus, God leaves all the comfort of heaven to join the struggle here on earth. And Jesus enters the world, not just in any way, not just in any body, but in a brown-skinned, Palestinian, Jewish refugee. That's how God comes to us, right? Mm, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and Jesus um, endures the suffering of the most humiliating kind as he's stripped naked, tortured, beaten uh, by the police and the guards and um, spit in his face and insulted him and hung him on the cross. And that is one of the most, I mean, I think that, that what happened in Jesus is the most profound act of divine solidarity that the world has ever seen, you know, and that's mm-hmm. why, that's why it should change how we orient ourselves. If we choose to follow Jesus, we're not trying to move out of the neighborhoods where there's struggle, we're trying to lean into those spaces. You know, we're trying to be, we should be in the streets crying out with those who are saying, I can't breathe, you know, Um, Hmm. naming the names of the lives that have been lost. So um, I I know that God is is with those who grieve, as, as Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Um, and, and so we, we want to be close to the, the pain um, and to those who, have, who are directly impacted. Uh, mm. Yeah, so that, that proximity makes a world of difference. And, um, and so like what we've been doing, you know, I, my friends and I have been traveling around the country with a forge uh, inspired by the, the, the prophets, Mike and Isaiah, when they cast this vision of God's people will beat their swords into plows, their spears into pruning hooks. And, you know, we don't have a lot of swords in the U.S., but we have more guns than people. So we started inviting people Mm. to disarm, you know, if they want to, to donate guns. And we've had hundreds and hundreds of guns uh, donated and we uh, repurpose them. You know, with the forge, we 
heat them up and, and transform the metal from a gun into garden tools. And, and, uh, but what's been so powerful is that as we're doing this, I, I believe it's, I, I use the word, you know, a church word, sacramental. You know, it's a holy mystery. It's a powerful thing to see a piece of metal, a gun that's been designed to kill, transformed into something else. Hmm. Well, a garden tool that's designed to kind of cultivate life. And as we do it, though, we invite those who have been directly impacted to take the hammer. And if they want to, to share a bit of their story. And it's been just unbelievable. You know, we, we did this before the pandemic. We traveled to 40 different cities all over the country uh, on our tour every night, you know, taking a gun from uh, each town or community and transforming it. And we, you know, I'll never forget, you know, when, when um, there's so many stories, but one in particular is my friend Sharon Risher, Reverend Sharon. Her mother was killed in Mother Emmanuel, uh, the, you know, historic AME church down in uh, Charleston. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and as she was beating on the gun, she named all nine of the Emmanuel nine. She named her mom, her two cousins, her childhood friend who were all killed in that shooting. And there wasn't a a, a dry eye, you know, there. And it felt like as she's doing that, uh, she wasn't just transforming a piece of metal, but she was really um, participating in the healing and transformation of our country and of our world, you know. And afterwards, she told me, she said, man, that was so good for my own soul. She said, I, Mm -hmm. everything I've wanted to do to Dylan Roof, you know, the shooter, she said, I just took it all out on that piece of gun metal. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and yeah. we've, we've had someone else that as they were beating on the gun, they counted 18 times and then sort of uh, retreated. And we said, you know, do you want to talk about it? And the, and the young man said, yeah, I, I killed someone that was 18 years old. And so wow. I counted one hit for every year of their life, you know, and, and I'm praying that God will continue to heal me. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of work, I think that's what the proximity is about, right? And that's where we need to be. We need to be near those who have been impacted. Um, so, you know, we're, we're not going to have a fire in our bones for justice until we're closer to the, the victims of injustice. Yeah, no. And, and as someone, it's, it's interesting you bring up the, the Forge tour because you went to, um, to Thousand Oaks, California, and you you went to Charleston with it, and I actually moved from Thousand Oaks to Charleston. Mm. Um, and uh, I was in Charleston the night of the shooting um, at the borderline uh, the the borderline club, and a, a friend of mine from from back in middle school we hadn't kept in touch, but he was actually killed that night. Mm. Um, I'm sorry. And I, I I I vividly remember uh, talking to people that had come to that event in thousand oaks who who were really healed by by the ministry that you guys did to them so as someone from thousand oaks who now lives in charleston like thank you for 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 that tour i mean i i wish i could could have gone i i hope that whenever covid decides to to lighten up a little bit more that that uh you'll be able to make it back out to either one of those cities and I'll happen to be there. Oh yeah, man, absolutely. And, uh, and you know, even in the pandemic, we've still been taking donated guns. So, you know, if there's people that are listening to this, that, uh, uh, you know, I mean, even in the quarantine of the pandemic, there's, there's things that there's a lot of people I think that are rethinking 
a number of things. And one of those is the possession of, of guns and the accessibility. It makes suicide mm-hmm. um, so yeah. much um, more uh, of a reality. So many more lives lost to suicide um, because of the easy access to guns, domestic violence. You know, yeah. a, a gun radically changes the situation from um, so often a, a woman that's, you know, a victim of domestic violence um, becomes a, a victim of domestic homicide um, because of uh, the guns in the house. So, um, yeah, if po- people that are listening to this want to donate a gun. You can um, uh, holler at us. Our website is for, for the gun work that we're doing, um, guns to, to plows is rawtools.org. So it's war flip mm-hmm. backwards, R-A-W tools, rawtools.org. And um, we have a, you know, a very specific way that we decommission guns, but we, um, we're glad to bring all the equipment that we have to you. And uh, if you have guns, you know, sometimes people have inherited them or they're just rethinking handguns in the house. Or, you know, we've had a lot of people that say, I have an AR you know, 15 or an AK-47, and I just don't want it anymore. And so we're, we're really glad to uh, take those guns off people's hands. We've had military service members that have been really traumatized by war that come back and they want to get rid of all their weapons. So we're, we're glad to be a part of that prophetic work, that uh, holy work is what the uh, Isaiah and Micah talked about. So let's yeah. Do it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more than that, right? Of uh, It's a, it, in a way it's, it's bringing the kingdom here now. I think that's something that's so beautiful uh, about that work of like for, for so many people. And it, it all comes back to the words of Jesus. Like the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It does not mean the kingdom of heaven is coming. It means the kingdom of heaven is here. Yeah. Like I am the kingdom of heaven. Like it is now like the freedom to the slave, the, the slight, the sight to the blind, like the healing for the sick. That's now. Yeah. Like in this day, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Exactly. And I think so many said, yeah. Sorry. No, it's exactly right. He said it's it's now, and he also said the kingdom is within you, right? Like the the revolution begins inside of you. So it's a real invitation for us to actively participate, right, in the changing of the world. Yeah. Absolutely. And and you brought up something something that I, I kind of want to touch on a little bit of in this season of COVID, people rethinking things and and uh, whether it be gun ownership or nationalism or, or the death penalty or immigration or even just kind of the the um, the the resonating no like no more from from the murder of of way too many innocent African Americans to count. Um, it, it's been a, it's been an interesting moment in history where we have all these people at home that are paying attention to the news cycle more than they probably ever have. And now we have probably one of the most polarized elections in the history of, of this country, if not, maybe not the first, the most, but but one of for sure. Um, as someone who who embraces the prophetic, as someone who wants to see the kingdom come now, as someone who who does the work and, and walks how they talk, if you could say anything to the evangelical church, the, the ex-evangelical church, the, the red letter Christians, like what? What would you say to them? I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a political endorsement. It doesn't have to be a anything. But w- there's there's just so much going on right now, and and I think we need prophetic voices like yours. And so, what 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 advice can you give to us? 
Well, my brother, I, I think that you're right. We don't want to get back to normal because normal wasn't working. You know, normal, <laughs> normal has gotten us where we are right now. You know, four, 400 years after slavery in, in the form of, uh, you know, that we had it here in the U.S. Now we have one in every three African-American boys born today can expect to go to prison. One in three. You know, we, we've got inequities between the super rich and super poor that are just unimaginable. You know, less than um, 80 people, uh, 80 of the richest people in the world now own the same amount as half of the world's population. So over three yeah. and a half billion people. You know, you, you think of um, the, the um, those inequities, you think of the, the, the climate crisis, the gun violence. I mean, in my lifetime, we've lost more people domestically to guns than in all of the wars in American history combined. Stunning. Jeez. Like, like we, are a, we have a lot of things in our society that need healing. And I think that the pandemic has sort of shown us that, you know, let, let's not get back to normal. Normal got us George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. You know, normal uh, it got us um, the, the, right where we are right now. So let's like, let's figure out what the, this, the next chapter of our life together could look like in this, this uh, American experiment. And, and, um, and, and just a couple other things that I would say about the current crisis is that, uh, it's been said that Trump didn't change America. He revealed America. And I mm. think that's true. You know, I don't think racism has gotten worse. It's just gotten exposed. Um, mm. And, um, and we, we, we know Don, who Donald Trump is. Um, but yeah. this election is about who we are and who we want to be as, as a country. And I pray for Donald Trump. I, I, you know, Jesus said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. A tree is known by its fruit. And right now, um, I'm working hard enough on the log in my own eye to judge my brothers and sisters. But, you know, a tree being known by its fruit, I look at the seven deadly sins and I'm very concerned because, you know, Donald Trump's life looks more like the seven deadly sins than the fruits of the spirit. <laughs> you know, So yeah. we, and, and yeah. I pray for him. And I think that Donald Trump, just like me and you, he needs Jesus. Uh, but we need a new president. <laughs> you know, this, <laughs> this is not working. Uh, so yeah. I, I, I um, you know, I mean, and he said that. He said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and, and uh, not lose support. So, he, you know, mm. I think we know, we know that. And, and yet, I think, uh, like, it, it is my loyalty to Jesus that creates um, my um, deep concern about Donald Trump. And it's not just his rhetoric. I mean, that's bad enough, but it's also his policies um, and the things that we're seeing in our administration. I mean, uh, children being taken from their parents, now over 540 kids that we don't know where their parents are, kids in cages, like all mm -hmm. these things. Like this is, we've seen in the middle of a pandemic, this administration go out of its way to restart federal executions. So as states are each, you know, all over our country, individual states are moving away from the death penalty. Every year, almost uh, every year, a new state abolishes the death penalty. And we haven't, we went 17 years without our federal government uh, executing anyone. And this year, 
we've had more executions at the federal level than in the last 50 years combined under wow. Republican and Democratic presidents. So there is no reason to call this administration pro-life. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is my love for life. Um, and coming out of the pandemic, uh, so help us, God, may we have, you know, a, a, a renewed uh, reverence for life and, and a new sympathy and empathy for those who have lost their loved ones that will walk away from this pandemic, I hope, um, wanting to do everything we can to subvert death, <laughs> you know, in yeah. every form. We go, we don't want another life to be lost from guns. And right now we're losing a hundred a day, you know? So these are the yeah. other pandemics, you know, that were happening before COVID and racism is certainly one of those, you know, that uh, we've got to uh, seek that kind of healing and truth telling. So, you know, alongside the pandemic has been this massive racial uh, reckoning that's happening all over our country. And there's no coincidence that it comes on the back of the first black president, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, the changing demographics of Congress. And so I think there is a white anxiety, a white fear, a white fragility in that culture of folks that have dominated much of the power for the last 400 years, you know. And so now when people say, make America great again, uh, let there be no mistake, you know, uh, th they're often saying, make America white again. Because you, mm. you, you think, what era of American history would black folks like to relive? <laughs> you know, is yeah. it the 1950s? Is it the 1920s? Is it the, you know, 1880s? Where are we at here? You know, so, but I, yeah. I want to say this too. I want to say, and then I'll close, brother, but I, I you asked me a big question. And the last thing I want to say is like, I hope that folks do not give up on Jesus because of the embarrassing things that some Christians have done in his name. <laughs> you know, yeah. that, because what's happened is there is a version of American nationalism that's camouflaging itself as Christianity, but it doesn't look like Jesus. Mm. And, and, and there's an entire landscape outside of that toxic version of Christianity, of white evangelicalism that um, so often seems more committed to Trump than to Jesus. Um, there's a whole other thing happening in our country led by men and women of color, led by folk. And, and there's a lot of good white folks that are rethinking their faith too. But I, I, I think that when we see over 80% of white evangelicals supporting um, things that are so unchristlike, uh, it does a lot of damage, you know, to the reputation that we have uh, in the public sphere. So um, I hope that'll give us some humility and some grace, but we need to lean in to the healthier versions of faith. And for those of you that might be listening that have rejected Trump evangelicalism, I want to say that they, that may not be the end of your faith. That might be the beginning. <laughs> you know, it's saying, yeah. it's saying no to a distorted version of faith that might be the beginning of a more better, better and beautiful faith. Yeah, totally. And I mean, like I said, we, we, for so many people, it, it, it's fascinating for, for me of like, 
the the reason that I I started deconstructing and, and rethinking my faith actually had absolutely nothing to do with Trump. Um, but for so many people that I talk to who have who have found new expressions of faith, who have found more nuance in their faith, who have who have in and unfortunately some of whom have, have walked away from faith, um, the reason is Trump. Like this is a this is a powerful entity that is I mean, people want to talk about how our nation needs prayer and Jesus is the only way, but in actuality, this administration and the people backing it are actually pushing people further away from Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's why I think we've got to see that this is the fault line here is race, though, uh, mm. that just just as it's true that, you know, at least in the last election, 80 per 80 percent or more of white evangelicals supported Trump. What's also true is as you get outside of white evangelicalism, 80% of Christians of color, non-white Christians, do not support Trump and his policies. So I just want to say that sometimes it gives too much power to the colonizing narrative of that sort of toxic version of Christianity if we say, I'm done with it all. You know, and I think there may be a space where you reject that, but then you go, but look outside of white evangelicalism. I mean, you got Reverend Barber in Mm. North Carolina, you got Tracy Blackman rising up in Ferguson, you got Leslie Callahan in Philly and Mark Tyler, you got, you know, uh, Michael Waters in Dallas, Texas, and the McBride brothers out in California. I mean, all over our country, there are faith leaders um, that have a gospel that is centered around Jesus, but is also liberating and life-giving and stands against those forces that are so destructive of our brothers and sisters. So we need, you know, I think we need to lean into that. Hmm. Yeah, no, and I usually... I usually close we're just because we're we're running so short on time we're going a little over. Um I usually try to close by saying where can people find you and what are you working on and I, I do want to ask that but as well as that who are some people that that you you've mentioned a, a lot of people within the confines of this podcast who are some people and what are some ministries that you'd like to point people to? Well, that that's that's pretty easy because I believe in that Uh, as my friend Reverend Barber says, that the way that we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. And so Mm. if you go to Red Letter Christians, redletterchristians.org, you'll see about a hundred different speakers and writers, preachers and songwriters and artists that are changing the narrative because they have a a healthier, I think, version of Christianity. So I just say, you know, head over there and, and for sure people can follow me on social media um, I'm at, I'm really active on Twitter and Facebook and just, just gonna, I'm going to start Chris on the Instagram here shortly, but anyway, <laughs> I'm, yeah, it's just my name, Shane Claiborne on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and, uh, I'm still doing a lot of virtual events too. If people want to go to my website, shaneclaiborne.com and we can schedule, uh, an event either virtual or a real physical event in the near future. Heck yeah. No, I'd. If you're if you're in Charleston again, let me know and I'd love to love to meet meet up with you. Absolutely, my brother. Thanks for keeping a good conversation going and uh thank you everybody for listening. Absolutely. But before I close though, I I as I kind of told you before before we started recording, um I this show kind of started with a heart for spiritual practices 
And I think you and I can can both look at the world and see a lot of discouragement. And I think a lot of a, a spiritual practice that's really lacking is is encouragement. And mm. so, Shane, I just really want to encourage you as someone who um, has been deeply impacted uh, by by your work, by by your practice, by your heart. Um, I, I think that a big argument that was always made to me growing up in a, in a highly conservative evangelical context was the, the, yeah, I know Jesus said this and the early church did this, but you can't run a country like that. Mm-hmm. Like you mm-hmm. can't run a community like that. And, and you are someone who I point to and I'm like, no, Shane Claiborne is doing it where he's living. Like he's being obedient to the words of Jesus and honoring the, the legacy of the early church. And so Shane, I cannot begin to express how, how thankful I am for your life, for your uh, ministry, for your witness to the person of Jesus and how, how good the church can be and, and how powerful of a, a force for love and for, for good that it can be in the world. Well, you, you, you got such kind words and I, I pray, you know, every day that we would, uh, that I would be, um, uh, that God would would you know work through this broken vessel. So I I'm I'm grateful for your words and uh, pray that we'll we'll all keep leaning in. You know and um, I do a lot of work with my friend Tony Campolo and one of the things that he says is uh, when people tell him that the church is full of hypocrites, he says no it's not. We've always got room for more. <laughs> <laughs> so you know this is a, this is about a a. a perfect and holy God. And we're all just trying to help each other become a little bit more like that God. So thank you, brother. Mm, Absolutely. Thank you.